0: Great the Coaching Tree Podcast, Episode 3. Along with Colter Nuanas, I am Ryan Tutel and in this episode, we feature Stu Morrill. Colter, the great Stu Morrill, who got his start at the University of Montana. He was An assistant coach for all eight seasons under Mike Montgomery from 1978 through 1986 and then took over as the head coach uh, of the Grizzlies when Mike Montgomery departed. And Stu Morrill probably groomed for that spot. I know that he had, as we heard from Mike Montgomery, his blessing and his uh, advocacy to take over the head coaching spot and was the head coach at the University of Montana for five seasons from 1986 through 1991 and was the first coach to take the Grizzlies back to the tournament in his final season in 1990-1991. Montana won the Big Sky Conference 13-3 in that season and made it into the big dance for the first time in over a decade.
1: We talk about fit at a place, and Stu Morrill was definitely able to take the foundation and momentum that Mike Montgomery built and get the Grizzlies over the top for that first time, then handed the program to Blaine Taylor, and he took them to the NCAA tournament two more times after that. But that really set the stage for Montana's not perennial, but consistent appearances in the tournament. You had three, one one to cap the 80s, three in the 1990s, and then four or five each of the last two decades. And that's as consistent as you're going to find in a one bid league like the Big Sky Conference. Stu Morrill did such a great job of that. But also then... Mike Montgomery, so many accolades and so much prestige from taking Stanford to the Final Four and coaching in the NBA, coaching in Cal, and guys like Larry Kristoviak and Wayne Tinkle that are part of this coaching tree, you know, now being on the Pac-12 network pretty much once a week and having such a visible national face. But when it comes to actually winning basketball games, you could argue that Stu Morrill is the greatest winner of this group. After he left the University of Montana, he went to Colorado State for seven seasons, He had back-to-back 20 win seasons before then getting the Utah State job. And you talk about turning something that had almost nothing into something that is almost peerless. The Utah State Aggies were absolutely the dominant team in the Big West. They were absolutely the dominant team in the WAC. And Sumo only got a chance to coach a couple years in the Mountain West, so we don't really know what he would have done there. But during his time coaching in the Big West and the WAC, Utah State had 14 20-win seasons.
0: They weren't 14 in a row, though, 20-win seasons, because they were broken up by two 30-win seasons. Exactly.
1: I mean, you look at it, and 20, we know that, I mean, 20 wins is a great benchmark in in college hoops. But the difference between 20 and 23 is significant. And the difference between 23 and 25 and 26 is significant. And the difference between that and 28 and above is even more significant. And it wasn't just 20-win seasons. 28, 28, 25, 26, 30. 27, 30. So you're talking about not only 14, 20 win seasons, but half of those are 27 or more. It's amazing. Utah State was almost a lock every year for the NCAA tournament and to be in the mix among the best mid-majors in the country. But so much of that started here in Missoula, and it was fun talking to Stu about his origin story, working for Mike Montgomery and then taking over the program for the first time And just the love he has for this place and the way it set the stage for one of the great mid-major basketball careers that we have seen. I mean, the guy won 72% of his games at Utah State and won almost 70% of his games over his career. 620 victories, which I think is even more than Mike Montgomery. So, Stu Morrill, the consummate winner and definitely a unique and very fulfilling portion of this coaching tree.
0: He's a complete winner, Coulter. And you know who else is a winner? Mike Nugent at Berkshire Hathaway, he is a winner. He is going to get you the house of your dreams, the property you're looking for, or if you need to get a place sold in and around western Montana, the greater Missoula area, nobody better equipped than Mike Nugent at Berkshire Hathaway to move homes and properties for you and get you set with everything and anything that you need.
1: And so much of buying and selling a home can be so confusing. It can be so scary. And Mike's best asset in the real estate community is just his knowledge, but also his willingness to share that knowledge. And I think that's why he's so excited and and invested in this podcast, because he understands how important the history of a place is to making a place great. And this Grizz Greats Coaching Tree is what makes Missoula great. And Mike is a part of what makes Missoula great, too. As a Missoula native, he knows the community in and out, and he can ease any of your apprehension when it comes to anything In the real estate business. So if you have any questions at all, just give Mike a call. He'll answer any question that you have, whether it's about
0: being pre-approved, buying a home, selling a home, buying a business, selling a business. And very much at ease. He's here to work for you. He's not here to sell you something. So he will take your hand and walk you through it, whether you're a first-timer or a veteran in the real estate buying and selling world. He's going to make your experience as good as it can possibly be.
1: Any question you have, big or small, Berkshire Hathaway has the answer. So give Mike Nugent a call today, 406-531-1802. That's 406-531-1802. Mike Nugent, Mike Bryan, Gary Bryan, passionate Montana basketball fans and passionate supporters of the University of Montana and the Missoula community. Berkshire Hathaway, your local
0: real estate experts. Coulter, the last thing before we get into this podcast, the meat of it, and the interview with Stu Moral. As you mentioned, five years at Montana, then seven at Colorado State, and then 17, I believe 17, 1998 through 2015 at Utah State, but also universally liked. Stu Morrill is a guy, the players that played for him in general, obviously all coaches are going to have to be hard at times on their players and so forth and so on, but also just to talk to him, how engaging a guy that he is, and the other coaches Speak so very highly of Stu, including Robin Selving in particular, who I think highlighted Stu as probably the guy he became closest with. I mean, they were at the University of Montana ultimately for 14 years together, 13 years together, so there's a, a long stretch of time, obviously, to cultivate and grow a relationship, and guys who were in the same age range, that is something that I think is special, and not everybody has that in that same way, and, uh, and I think that's a, a good thing in the the wake of people who were there to – speak fondly and share stories of Stu Morrill is is very, very large.
1: Every coach has their strengths, and the way that they administer those strengths within the scope of a program is very interesting. But you look at a guy like Judd Heathcote or a guy like Jim Brandenburg, those guys were taskmasters, disciplinarians. They got the most out of their players through hard tactics. Look at a guy like Mike Montgomery, it's his preparation, his acumen, his intellect that helped him be so successful. And then you look at a guy like Blaine Taylor, it's his charisma. You look at a guy like Don Holst, it's his ability to engender his players with confidence and recruit confident players. And then you look at Larry Kristowiak and Wayne Tinkle, they've walked the walk so they can talk the talk. They've played at the highest level so they can show you how to do that. You look at a guy like Travis DeKir that has created a program that has almost unbreakable expectations. When you look at Stu Morrill, his absolute strength is that if you talk to anybody, the guy is a basketball genius it's his ability to draw plays, the way he sees the X's and O's of the game. I mean, there's the legendary story, which you'll hear in a minute, about the, the motion stuff that they ran that then matriculated all the way up to being what the Golden State Warriors were using in the NBA some 25 years later to kill people offensively. And that, that in itself is such a testament to Stu Morrell's basketball brilliance, and I hope that comes through in, in this podcast.
0: Well, we thank you for joining us, and please enjoy Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree podcast episode 3 with Stu Morrill. Welcome to Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree Podcast, Episode 3, as we continue to interview and talk with every single head coach in the University of Montana head coaching lineage. And today, we're happy to welcome Stu Morrill, who's the head coach at the University of Montana from 1985 through 1991, went on to an illustrious career at Colorado State, and then for many years at Utah State University, outstanding to have him with us now. Coach Moral. how you doing?
2: I'm doing great, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be with you guys, and I'm sure it will bring back lots of memories. Well,
0: it's certainly I, I certainly hope so. You know, that's the <laughs> intent, so we're happy to have you here. You know, we'll start, I guess, with the obvious thing. You know, you played, obviously, basketball at Gonzaga, and then were an assistant coach there. But when Mike Montgomery took the job at the University of Montana, you landed on his radar as a guy that he really wanted to have as an assistant coach. That's when you came initially to the University of Montana. But where did that relationship spawn from? How did you and Mike Montgomery get together initially and then to the point where you said, yeah, I'd like to go coach for this guy in Missoula?
2: You know, I kind of had a first-row seat of what was going on at Montana. We were in the same conference, in the Big Sky Conference. Gonzaga was in that league at the time. When I played, and then uh, that's where I started my coaching career. I played a, a year overseas and then came back to Gonzaga and started coaching. And Mike was an assistant to Jim Brandenburg at Montana at the time. And then Brandenburg went to Wyoming, and and Mike and I were, you know, were acquaintances that got along well, but we were not, uh, we were not what I would call close friends at the time. We just knew each other, and I ended up getting involved with him on his open assistant position, and you know, fortunately, uh, we we had a nice meeting, and and Mike hired me, and that uh, really jump started my coaching career. One of the things I was twenty five years old at the time. And one of the things that appealed to me was a potential chance to be a head coach because Montana is and was one of the rare places that would elevate assistance. Both Mike and I got elevated having never had a head coaching job, and that is pretty dang rare. That uh, that puts a lot of faith in the system and trusting that uh, the guys are capable of doing the job. and. You know, I had seen Judd at his finest as a player when he was so active on the sidelines and, and really having uh, getting his success going at Montana. So when I came to Missoula with Mike, it was something uh, I was very much looking forward to.
1: Before you got to Missoula, when you were playing against, like playing against the Grizzlies and, and then coaching against the Grizzlies, what did you think of just the Montana program in general? And what sort of reputation did Judd Heathcote have around the region and around the country at that time?
2: He'd been a long-time assistant in Washington State, so he was well-known out west, but this was his first college head coaching job after having been a high school coach for a long time, and I remember looking over during the game at the guy on the sidelines and thinking he was wack- wacko. <laughs> <laughs> right. Little did I know that eventually I'd, I'd have my own sideline antics going, but Judd was, Judd was unique with his intensity and my junior year, I was on the same uh, Big Sky All-Conference team as Robin Selvig, both of both our senior years. I used to tease Robin that I was first team and he was second team All-Conference, and he uh, he would always respond, oh, they just took a bunch of big guys on first team. So, <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had a good banter going back and forth on that, but, you know, it was our senior year that Judd really got it going, and they started the dynasty at that point, but... For me, it was just special to, you know, get to be part of the Montana thing and coming from Gonzaga, being so close, I was pretty dang familiar with it.
0: Stu, you were an assistant for Mike Montgomery for eight seasons. It's rare that a guy's a head coach about anywhere this day and age for much longer than that, much less an assistant. Did you ever think that there would come a time where in order to move up in your career, we're going to have to leave the University of Montana and go elsewhere? Or did you just want to stay with Mike Montgomery the entire time that he was the head coach at the university?
2: Well, what's kind of ironic about it is we all start thinking we need to be a head coach and I was all of 33 years old when I did get the head coaching position. So, you know, I was fortunate to learn from Mike. And there was a time or two, sure, you thought, you know, maybe I should look at something else. But then it always came back that, hey, I like my job. I like where I live. I like the guy I work for. And this place has elevated assistance. And, you know, that's what came to pass. My time at Montana was very, very special because I was, 13 years in Montana, eight as an assistant, five as a head coach, and just my interaction with all the people there and the guys that I was the primary recruiter on. I recruited Christoviak when I was an assistant. I recruited Tinko. Travis DeCure ended up playing for me. Blaine Taylor was a player while I was an assistant. So the ties run deep, and we all feel very fortunate to have been part of the whole coaching tree there.
0: One thing that Mike Montgomery had said to us was back at that time, you could, you know, enjoy yourself a little bit and nobody seemed to get too bothered or too worried about it. What was your time like, particularly as an assistant initially, where you're not even in that spotlight of the head coach being a, you know, a young guy coming to Missoula and the life that you live in a college town like this while you're here?
2: Oh, it was a great place to be single and and enjoy Montana. And, and like you say, there wasn't near the social media stuff going on and, Mike and I were both young and having fun and playing golf and the summer recruiting wasn't quite like it uh, turned out to be and so it was a you know it was a special time and I met my wife Vicky there of course and got married and so it was a very influential part of my life and and you know and like I say uh, Mike was really good to work for you know we only had one assistant when I got hired one full time Scott Hollenbeck was our graduate assistant who became a Prominent realtor there in town and still lives there. But, you know, we only had one full time assistant. Now I think there's three. So it's really changed on how the profession has gone since those days.
0: You mentioned all the guys that you'd had recruited that then later went on to become head coaches of the University of Montana, including Travis, who's there now, of course. What do you remember about? recruiting some of those guys and trying to get them in there and were there some guys when you were on their trail where you thought hey at some point you know after their playing days are done this guy could be a coach this guy should be a coach
2: you never know what guys will decide to do for a living but you know larry krasowiak was just a a unique guy and that he was an unbelievably good student a fierce competitor three times mvp of, of the big sky conference and Uh, there was no question Larry was going to be successful in whatever he chose to do and and was able to play a long time in the NBA. And, you know, I always tease Larry that I was still a pretty good player. So I used to play some one-on-one with him back in the day. And my memory is such that I remember winning those games. He probably doesn't remember it that way. (laughs) But, uh, like I say, I was, I was awfully young and, and just still playing and enjoying playing. And Chrisco, I remember when we were recruiting Larry, there wasn't the summer exposure there is now. There, was, People didn't know about guys like they they do now. And and Larry visited Wyoming, Montana State, us, and Washington State, I think. And Washington State, you know, they weren't sure he was quite good enough, <laughs> which was a big mistake. I remember one of guy guys telling me, you know, we think he might be a Division II player. Here's a guy that goes on and plays a long time in the NBA. What was definitely not a Division two player, but you know, there's stories like that. Playing against Larry Wayne Tinkle was a special recruit. His dad had been the dean of students when I was playing the dean of students at Gonzaga, and I had actually babysat Wayne one time uh, when I was playing, and he was a, just a young kid running around. So I knew that family pretty well, and Gonzaga would, thought they were gonna, going to get Tinkle, and we were able to persuade him uh, to come to Montana which worked out pretty well for him in the long run and you know so you remember things like that Blaine was a sophomore Blaine Taylor when I got to Montana and I asked Mike who our point guard was going to be and he said well there's you know that little slow guy down there what do you think of him and (laughs) (laughs) and I said you know what he he knows how to play and he understands the game and of course uh, Blaine has understood the game for a long long time now but You know, you remember all kinds of things like that about different people and, you know, players you recruited. I remember going over to see John Stockton. We tried like heck to recruit him. He did end up at Gonzaga, obviously. But lots of memories during my time at Montana and and lots of fun memories and personal memories, you know, with starting a family and all those kind of things.
1: During that time when you were an assistant under Mike Montgomery, you guys had – Great success, uh, both with individuals like Larry I you mentioned him winning three Big Sky Conference MVPs, and as a team, you guys were always at or near the top of the Big Sky Conference, but could never quite punch through and, and win the Big Sky Tournament and advance to the NCAA Tournament. So what do you remember about that element of it, just how stacked the Big Sky was at that point, and just how tough it was to win the league and advance to the big dance?
2: It's all just sometimes good fortune, and it's all relative to having a little bit of luck and I always tell people, and I remember saying to Mike at the time that we went to the NC2A tournament my last year as head coach. First time in 17 years, second time in school history we'd been to the NC2A tournament. But we had been in the championship game four times in eight years when Mike was coaching. So very easily could have gone a couple times or more and just was kind of snake bit on close championship games. And then in my five years, we only got to the tournament championship game one time, but we did win it. It was in Missoula. And the funny thing about that game, we hadn't been in in quite a while, 17 years since Judd was coaching. And I remember they were taking bets downtown at Red's Bar that we were going to get beat. (laughs) So, you know, there was a lot of people speculating that uh, we may never go again. So much for the hometown
0: support, huh, Coach?
2: Wow, well, they were great. They came to the game were loud, but there were a few betting against us, that's for sure. You know, that's what makes me, Missoula unique. Uh, one of the most unique places I've ever lived or been a part of. I, I love Missoula, Montana. I have a son that still lives there and his family, so we get there quite often. But thinking back to just how fortunate uh, we were to win that one championship game, and at that point the Colorado State job came up, and... And I left after 13 years and cried like a baby when I left because I loved it so much. And I left Blaine at 27 and 14 the next year, so so he benefited from uh, what we had going at the time.
0: Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree Podcast is brought to you in part by Blackfoot Communications. We know that we live in a day and age where security is as important as ever, and particularly online security, firewalls, data backups. And network security are all critical to the success of any business that you have. But we also know it's very complex and your business demands a simpler approach to network security at Blackfoot communications. They deliver state of the art security solutions from the perimeter to endpoint devices and remote data backups for businesses across the great state of Montana. Ensure your company network is online all the time, safe and secure with Blackfoot communications. For more information, Visit goblackfoot.com slash business.
1: Coaching for Mike Montgomery and coaching alongside him during that time, what do you remember about Monty back then, and what was that experience like? how did that help you grow as a coach?
2: I always tell people that he was my mentor. Is you know, I mean, we're all getting in old now, but Mike was, you know, I, I told a good friend when I first started working for Mike, uh, this guy is special. Uh, he's going to have an unbelievable coaching career, which proved to be true. He just had a great understanding of basketball and he had a way of pushing kids and making them be as good as they could possibly become. Just a special coach. And, and I was fortunate to, you know, cut my teeth under Mike. The guy I played for at Gonzaga was very influential as well, Adrian Bone But I was a young guy getting started under Adrian, and then kind of when I got with Mike, those eight years was where I became a coach that had a chance to be a head coach. I'll tell you what, when we all got the head job, it was quite an adjustment, that's for sure.
1: It was a cool experience for us a year or two ago when the Wall Street Journal wrote an article about Golden State Warriors and their offense and and some of the plays that they run that maybe had roots in Missoula. I think that they even referenced warden's market in the story and you guys hanging out and eating food and and drawing up plays so do you remember just bouncing ideas off of mike like that and and how were you guys able to cultivate such uh, innovative offensive ideas that have now matriculated through basketball some 30 years later
2: when i worked for mike we really used a lot of the system that montana had in place through judd and Brandenburg, and we just started to evolved that system and put in some of our own stuff as the years went by and and kind of adapt to how basketball was changing the actual play that was in the Wall Street Journal was a play that Blaine Taylor and I drew up when Blaine was working for me Blaine was my assistant coach and and it was a play that I had a lot of success with it all my coaching stops and that hundreds and hundreds of teams For whatever reason, you know, the main reason was if you ran it right, you got a layup. And that's a pretty good shot. (laughs) If you can get a layup anytime in basketball, it's a pretty good deal. And that play would get you one if you ran it right. And, you know, it eventually made its way all the way to the NBA. And so it was uh, was fun to develop things offensively as, as my coaching career went along. Through the three stops as a head coach, that was probably what I was known as much for as anything was offensive basketball and and set plays, and and I really enjoyed that part of it. But, yeah, Blaine and I sat down. He remembers it different than I do. Uh, I don't remember uh, sitting downtown eating somewhere and drawing it on a napkin. I (laughs) I remember drawing it in the office. uh, But, you know, who knows who's right on that whole deal. That was a long time ago.
0: When you did ultimately then break through, you mentioned it had been 17 years. That seems like a real windfall because the University of Montana now has gone to the tournament as consistently as anybody, really, from the Big Sky Conference from that time to the present. But it seemed like that was maybe a moment where it really needed to happen, even with some great players that never did do it. So what what do you think, in retrospect, that win on that day to get into the tournament was you know meant to you and meant to uh, uh, this university?
2: I uh, remember sitting down afterwards and writing a letter to all those guys and coaches, you know, specifically Mike, that that had come so close and just talking about they were a big part of this win because they set the tone for how the program was going to be and the type of players we were able to recruit. And they were just a little bit snake bit, and we got a little bit lucky. And I remember very well, in, in the we hosted the Big Sky Tournament in Missoula because we won the regular season the regular season winner used to host tournament and we were down to basically playing seven guys with injuries and those kind of things so it was nice we were home and and had the fan support and all of that and then of course we got uh he went up he got the number one seed in the country and and we got them they had stacy Ogman and larry johnson and anderson hunt and all those guys all first round picks and they were on their big time roll, but it was tremendous publicity for the University of Montana, Missoula, at the time, because we were getting all kinds of national attention, and we hung in there for a while. Of course, they were they were awfully good, but it was just a special thing to get back to the tournament, and then, of course, you know, coaches that followed me uh, all uh, got to make appearances in the NCAA tournament at least most of them, I think, and and so Missoula. Has, has been a great basketball town, that's for sure.
1: That time in college basketball, so fascinating because you had sort of all the blue bloods that dominated in the 80s and then it turned a little bit in the early 90s when it just became so much more of a free-for-all when it comes to recruiting and people were having different tactics and I know that young players and freshmen and guys like that sort of made an impact on the game. You know, Michigan and the Fab Five, those great UNLV teams under Jerry Tarkanian, So getting to play the running Rebels during that time when they were so dominant, what do you remember about that? What was that experience like?
2: We had won the tournament, and we had been up to my house and different TVs going when they announced that we were playing the number one seed, UNLV Rebels, and I hear lots of cheers and groans throughout the house. But I also remember in a team meeting the next day telling guys who they were guarding and the looks on their faces when I said, okay, uh, you got Larry Johnson, <laughs> you got Stacy Ogman, <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you got Anderson Hunt, and you know on and on and on because uh, they had watched those teams for a couple years. You don't know he was the who's who of basketball at that time. So an experience those kids will, will never forget and and remember how we put that team together. Uh, two of the primary players on that team, Darren England and Roger Fasting, were Montana kids and. University of Montana has always had really good players from in-state, and then we supplemented with junior college athletes and kids from California and so on and so forth. We kind of went and got a player wherever we could get one and meshed it all together, and it all worked, and sometimes you get fortunate and do the best you can, and it all works out, and that's kind of what happened with that team, and like I say, they had almost everybody back the next year after I took the Colorado State job, and Blaine went to the NC two A's, went twenty-seven and four, I think. So it really continued to build after I left.
1: The Montana player element is an interesting one because there was so many great players that played at the University of Montana from Robin Selvig all the way through. And it seems like there's always been good talent in Montana. And even Larry Kristoviec had a great player in Kevin Criswell when they won that tournament game. But you yourself, when you left the state of montana you continue to recruit montana a little bit and i know you prioritized it when you were the head coach here too so what have you thought of just the way talent has evolved in the state over the last three or four decades
2: well we always felt that we had to get the best player in the state of montana because oftentimes there was one or two per year and we were the university of montana and we wanted montana kids to represent us and it goes in cycles you know some some years there might be three or four, and other years there might be one or two, and some years there might be zero that could play at our level. And the last thing you wanted to do was take a kid that wasn't quite good enough, because that had its own set of problems within state kids. So you really had to do a good job of evaluating. But Montana kids, it's something special for them to play in their own state, and it should be that way. You know, you should take pride in where you grew up and and represent you know, the schools in your home
0: state. Coach, you had been at the University of Montana as an assistant or a head coach for 13 seasons, and you mentioned it had been an emotional decision to make to end up going to Colorado State, but ultimately what was it that went into that choice for you that you said, hey, yeah, I want to go down and do something a little bit different?
2: There's so many factors that go into it, but something that the previous coaches had done, uh, if you were able to win at Montana, you took a a higher-level job in terms of conferences and salary and challenges and all that kind of thing. So it had kind of been ingrained to in me if I was fortunate enough to do well, that I need to take a look at that. I had four young kids at the time. Coaching is a precarious profession to say the least. And, you know, I looked back and was very fortunate that I got to be a head coach for 29 years and never got fired. So that's pretty rare in the coaching business. And I remember coming back and the AD, Bill Mooser is now the AD in Nebraska, was my AD. And and he had worked hard to try and put together a, a contract for me and a few things. And he told me what he could do. And then he asked me what Colorado State was going to pay me. And I told him. And he said, well, you need to go. <laughs> <laughs> right. you, know, you know, this is my AD. And I, I looked at him. I said, I know, but I don't want to go. I had such close friends and a wonderful time of our life for our family and all that. And I loved Missoula, still do. But it just was one of those things that you needed to do, and it proved to be very positive for me and for the guys that were able to follow and keep the thing going. And, you know, there's times when I look back and say, you know, it would have been pretty nice to be Robin Selig and just stay there all those years and and not be a vagabond and live in different places and all that kind of thing. But uh, he was a unique guy in a unique situation. There's not very many Robins that could stay one place and coach that long in one place.
0: Coulter, for the last 50 years, Stockman's Bar has been keeping the folks of Missoula hydrated, and the stories that have trafficked in and out of that place are as long as my arm. Back in the day, the Grizz
1: men's basketball coaching staff used to call it SBG as their code word for where they were going to meet up after work. Stockman's Bar and Grill, no longer a grill back there, but they do host Dobie Teriyaki, one of the best places in town. And they also have some of the best beer prices in town, too. $3 draft beers. Stockman's Bar has been a loyal and consistent, one of the most consistent supporters of University of Montana men's basketball for 50-plus years. Mike Larson. Donnie Larson, who runs Stockman's Bar. Grizz season ticket holders. Mike sat courtside for my whole life. So these guys, they know the ins and outs of Grizz basketball. They're friends with a lot of these coaches and former coaches. And it's always been a place where people connected to the University of Montana basketball program have chosen to congregate.
0: I might say I myself have chosen to congregate there a time or two and look forward to it each time. Some people have happy hours, Coulter. Stockman's just has happy bar. $3 beers
1: from open to close, seven days a week if you go get yourself some W Teriyaki, it's even a $2 draft beer. So head on down to Stockman's Bar where you can find yourself in a great story, and chances are it might involve the University of Montana men's basketball team. There is a lot more resources at a lot of different schools and a lot of different conferences than there are in the Big Sky Conference and at Montana. But when you first left Montana to go to Colorado State, what sort of things did you realize that had been a challenge maybe you didn't acknowledge was a challenge at Montana when you left?
2: I think I knew that job pretty well. After 13 years being in that program. And one thing that I always tell people is that I had more pressure as a head coach at Montana than I did anywhere else in my coaching career. And they look at me like, really? And I say, yeah, at the time we had a one year renewable contract. <laughs> you know, and if you got four little kids and you got a one year renewable contract, that's some pressure. And Judd had had such a great thing going that each one of us that followed, in that tradition and had to continue to win at a high level you felt the pressure of that and it motivated you and it was positive in a lot of ways but it was always there that hey i i got to get it done here we got to have success it doesn't just happen automatically people think that oh boy we you know we always win in basketball in montana that's because there's been a really good program and a you know a lot of good people have gone through that as players and coaches at the university so you know uh, just a chance to recruit at a higher level, play in a league where there were at the time more bids to the NC two A tournament. And when you're in a one bid league, you can have a really good team and not get to the dance. And anymore, everybody wants you to be in the NC two A tournament. Uh, when I left Colorado State and went to Utah State, it was because I felt we had a better chance to win our league, and we were able to go to the NC two A tournament eight times. And Um, you know, and, and so that proved to be true, but there were, there were just a whole lot of factors that told me that common sense is you need to take the Colorado state job, even though your heart says you don't want to leave Missoula.
0: Did you think that Blaine Taylor would succeed you at the university of Montana? And did you want him to, I mean, obviously following that same footprint of an assistant coach that gets elevated to his first head coaching gig, just like you had done?
2: Oh, I didn't think there was much doubt that's who they would hire. I had given Blaine lots of responsibilities. There were people in, in town that thought Blaine was coaching the team when I was the head coach, uh, <laughs> which, which uh, we used to laugh about because Blaine used to say, There's not really much doubt around here who's in charge. But, you know, people perceive things differently. But Blaine was very visible uh, out front and center. And, and I wanted him doing that, I instructed him to do that. We all were fortunate that the head coaches we worked for let us coach and prepared us to be head coaches. And I thought they would have been crazy if they hadn't hired Blaine. And I remember when I left, uh, when I got to Montana, and when Mike left after eight years, that the University of Montana hired me before Mike's press conference at Stanford. Before he'd even finished that, I was hired at Montana. he said to me, boy, they didn't waste any time. (laughs) You know, it was kind of the same way with Blaine. He got hired right after I was named head coach at Colorado State and knew he would do a great job, and he did do a great job. And and fortunately, he's uh, back in coaching and, and still doing a good job.
1: You mentioned the, some of the pressure that exists at Montana. I think it's a fascinating fold, and, and we've talked to several coaches at Montana about this, just how visible you are in the community. Because at the end of the day, Missoula is still a pretty small town, but so many people are so engaged in sports as well. Yeah, If you're Stu Morrill and you're the head coach at University of Montana, pretty much everybody in town knows who you are, and they have individual expectations for you, whether those are rational or not. But just you mentioned the pressure from the year-to-year contract, but just as far as just how many people are engaged and how important it is to people in Montana, how does that add to just the elements of the job?
2: Well, you know, once in a while you had to, to listen to a guy in the grocery store that would tell you how to coach. <laughs> <laughs> But most of the time, you just took that in stride, and, you know, people are are good-hearted people in Missoula. They're uh, down to earth. There's not a lot of pretensions. Uh, that's what I love about the time we spent there, living there and still going back there. It's just uh, a unique place. Some people say it's, it's like Berkeley in the 60s, in yeah, that there's a liberal element. Uh, there's lots of people with different opinions. Uh, there's a granola element. Uh, all those things add up to make Missoula special. But you uh, didn't go very many places where people didn't want to talk about hoops and want to talk about why you lost last night or why you were able to to win a big game, and you know uh, all of that uh, prepares you for the next stop if you're fortunate enough to to do well enough to leave. I went to a college town in Fort Collins, and then I went to a college town in Logan, Utah, and, and Montana prepared me for what that was going to be like it's a really good, you know, division one starter job. I remember when I got the job, Judd called me and he says, okay, it's a three and out place. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he he says, well, you either win and you're out of there in three years or you lose and they'll take you out of there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was a little bit of an overstatement, but he was getting his point across that, Hey, you're, this is a business you got to win in as a head coach. And, And of course, I knew that, but really got to know it even better uh, when I got to be a head coach.
0: Who were your biggest rivals when you were coaching at the University of Montana?
2: Oh, there's no question. Montana State. I mean, I used to tell friends of mine that weren't from there that it wasn't healthy to lose to the Cats. I mean, it, it wasn't professionally wise. You know, it started out, they were on a roll when I first got the job, and they had our number for a year or so, but... I think we ended up eleven and five against them during my time in Montana, and and those kind of stats will keep you keep you working. You're going to lose to them some, especially in Bozeman, but you don't want to you don't want to make it a habit. And that game, I remembered years ago uh, when I was head coach there that they estimated two out of every three Montanans watched that game on TV that year. We were both good. It was a big game, so. That rivalry is unique. I remember Wayne Tinkle coming over to me in Bozeman with about seven or eight seconds to go, and the game was either tied or we were down one. I think I think we were down one, but he asked me on the full-court press whether he should be on the ball or not, and we did both. And I said, ah, I don't know, get on the ball. Well, he stole the inbounds pass and laid it in, and we won at the buzzer. And I very easily could have told him to be a safety and be deep, but those kind of memories are pretty detailed. It tells you how how important the Montana State game was. But Idaho was good at that time. We had a, a good rivalry with them. Uh, you know, Different people in the Big Sky Conference. Boise was always a, a pain because they always thought that they were destined to beat you in anything. I've always said about Boise State, great school and all that, but when they're in the Big Sky, they thought they should be in the WAC. When they were in the WAC, they thought they should be in the Mountain West, on and on, and now they think they should be in the Pac-12, but so that's just the mentality of of that school, and and you are always facing different elements when you play different schools.
1: As a guy who's been around college athletics in the West for so long, what have you thought of the way that it's all transformed? Because, like you said, you know Boise, Nevada, all those schools used to be in the Big Sky Conference, and now they're not anymore. And you've seen the the whack exist and then not exist, in, 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 at least in terms of football, and completely transform when it comes to basketball. And then the advent of the Mountain West, the expansion of the Pac-12, from your seat, what's it been like to watch all that?
2: It's a little bit sad to me in some ways because the haves are really making it hard on the so called have nots. You know, if you're not in a Power Five conference, you have a very small chance of getting an, a large bid to the NC2A tournament. I have fear that they will separate and become the power leagues and then the non power leagues in, in terms of basketball. And I'd hate to see that happen. The NC2A tournament is so special with the smaller schools stepping up and upsetting people on those kinds of things. But the committees, the budgets, the TV money, all of that is uh, favoring the big boys. And I was never at one of those schools. I was always at Montana, Colorado State, Utah State. So I have strong feelings about uh, that level of competition. And hate to see the way it's trending towards all the big schools having all the
0: power. Coach, you mentioned that you thought when you went to Utah State that you'd have a a better chance to win the league while you were there, and that clearly turned out to be the case, and you spent a long time, 17 seasons, I think, at uh, Utah State. Why were you able to be so successful there, and what foundation did you have? I mean, we've gone over a lot of this, but that you were able to apply to make that such a fantastic run for you and for that university.
2: You know, I always thought you should stay at uh, college jobs five to seven years. That was my thing when I was a young head coach because, you know, they kinda sometimes can get tired of you. The job can wear on you and, and it, sometimes you can get a little bit reborn when you take a new job. So I was five years at Montana and I was seven years at Colorado State and I got to Utah State and stayed seventeen. So my theory uh went out the window. But <laughs> we had a, a very special run going at the time. We were dominating the leagues we were in and the formula was similar to what we did in Montana. I had learned, you know, how important the in-state kids were and I had a bunch of in-state Utah kids on my teams at Utah State and you know, we averaged close to 10,000 people every night out. Students came out in force, we'd get 4 to 5,000 of them and our home court was considered one of the best in the country, so it it was a unique place and and they're doing very well uh, right now uh, you know they're ranked 17th in the country going into the season so you know it is a place where basketball's like Montana where basketball is a big deal and where it has been long before me for a long long time so I was a head coach that got to follow Mike Montgomery at Montana Larry stacy at the Utah State and the Colorado State boys grant so You know, I was following some good coaches wherever I went and programs that had a chance to win.
0: Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree podcast is brought to you in part by Blackfoot Communications. We know that we live in a day and age where security is as important as ever, and particularly online security, firewalls, data backups, and network security are all critical to the success of any business that you have. But we also know it's very complex, and your business demands a simpler approach to network security. At Blackfoot Communications, they deliver state-of-the-art security solutions. From the perimeter to endpoint devices and remote data backups for businesses across the great state of Montana. Ensure your company network is online all the time, safe and secure with Blackfoot Communications. For more information, visit goblackfoot.com slash business.
1: What was the key to be able to get Utah State rolling from a talent perspective because you look at the state of Utah and BYU has such great tradition and just entrenched advantages in the state of Utah University of Utah with all the money they've poured into athletics in general over the last 25 to 30 years has been a huge challenge for everybody else and then Weaver State had and still has great tradition as well so how are you guys able to you mentioned recruiting in-state kids go head to head with some of those schools and, and be able to get some of the best players in the state of Utah
2: well, so I grew up in Utah. One of the reasons I took the Utah State job, when I was a high school player in Utah, all four schools you mentioned were in the top 20. <laughs> now That that was a unique year, but it tells you that there's awfully good basketball tradition there. The state of Utah high school basketball is very good. There could be eight to ten players a year, Division One players, and certainly BYU-Utah can't take them all. We hit Utah at a good time where they were down a little bit. Majerus had gone, and uh, the first couple of years he was there. But then uh, we were able to go, I think, ten and five against Utahs, and that's that's hard to do. But our home court was so good, and so we were able to compete head up with them on some kids and BYU. If if it's a strong LDS kid, you're not going to beat them, but they couldn't take them all. And a couple of my teams that were nationally ranked, we had three or four players from the state of Utah that started. So we were obviously able to generate some of those kids. And if we could get them to see a home court game where the students and the crowd was as good as it gets anywhere, it gave us a chance.
0: Larry, of course, took the Utah job in 2011 while you were still there at Utah State. Did you call him up and tell him, hey, this is no, you're not coming in here and going to bother me. I'm coming for you, man. Did you give him the old coach-player routine there? No.
2: Larry and I have always had just a very solid, fun relationship. He's been great to me since he's been in Utah. Throughout his career, he's always really, really nice to me. We decided that we were not going to play and it was partly because University of Utah and Utah State had always played home and home and Larry was going into the Pac-12 didn't think he should be coming to Logan, Utah. He's probably right. If I'm him, I wouldn't think I should be coming to Logan, Utah. But (laughs) if you're me and you were 10-5 against Utah, you're not just going to play him in Salt Lake. So... The end result was, you know what, uh, being such good friends, maybe we should take a break. And it, it worked for a few years, and then I retired. But it's really not fair to basketball fans in the state of Utah. They are playing again, but not in Logan. They're playing on a neutral floor. And, and the rivalries, uh, BYU continued to play us. We've always played Weber. Those in-state games are are very unique in that state because of, of the quality of those four teams.
1: During your time at Colorado State and at Utah State, a couple guys that we've become familiar with in the Big Sky Conference were assistants of yours, Ray Ray and, and Don Verlin. What sort of uh, impact did they have just on your recruiting and the building of, of those two programs? And, and then now their matriculation down to becoming head coaches in the Big Sky Conference.
2: Well, you know, you were talking about me staying eight years at Montana as an assistant. Randy Ray stayed uh, 13 years with me. Don Verlin stayed 15 years with me. Tim Duryea, who became the head coach of Utah State when I left, stayed 16 years with me. So I used to kid him. You know, I think it's just because I let you guys play golf that you've stayed so long. <laughs> uh, a, lot, a lot of head coaches don't let guys have a camper or play golf. You know, they don't think that's what you should be doing. But I had great assistants. Those guys were such high quality. And fortunately, uh, they were able to get head coaching jobs. And the fact that we had... Been pretty dang good in the state of Utah. Allowed Randy to interview for the Weber State job and get that job. And obviously, he's done an unbelievable job there with all the success he's had in the Big Sky Conference. Don is an excellent coach, all-time winningest coach in terms of number of victories at University of Idaho. But that is a hard job, and he lasted a long time there. But recently, uh, was terminated as can happen in coaching. So I think guys that jump in and make the program their own as assistants, give themselves a chance to someday be a head coach, and that's what happened with those guys.
0: Well, Stu, obviously one of the – You know, impetuses for this podcast series is the fact that the coaching tree coming from and through the University of Montana has gone on to be just wildly successful, both at the University of Montana and then beyond as coaches have, you know, moved on to go other places and do other things, yourself included. And sometimes if you look at it from, you know, from the outside, you go, how could coaches from all of them from you know a small school in a small conference go on to be as successful all the way up into the ranks of the NBA and the tournament and national championships and all of that why do you think that has been the case for for coaches who have come through Missoula?
2: you know we all kind of call Judd the Godfather, and and Judd was the one that had success at Montana when nobody else thought you could have success and it, he got it going. And the interesting thing is, is he had two great years and three that were, were just okay, but that can, that can happen in coaching the two great years defined the start of that program. And, you know, I I think it's, uh, it's just good fortune that a lot of us uh, were raised in that program, taught how you could win there, what you had to do to, to have high character people. And, and the type of basketball you had to play and, and the community involvement was so critical in the success. But I also think it's such a unique story. You know, Travis had us all back for a roast a few years ago, and it was a wonderful time, a once in a lifetime event and raised a little money. And, and we all talked way too long, but, you know, it was just a a special thing to all of us to have come through there and, to get together and and remember how it all happened. So you know, I, I good fortune, a uh, great program, great university, uh, a lot of guys that were were capable and wanted to learn, and and it all just kind of worked. And nowhere else in the country have they continued to hire assistants, continued to give them a chance to be successful. And I hope Montana never quits doing that. I think they they did break the the string and went outside of the family so to speak one time and that didn't work (laughs) so maybe they'll be smart enough to continue with guys that have cut their teeth in that program
1: all of what we've talked about has been about basketball and coaching and that's obviously been a gigantic huge part of your life but from a personal level you mentioned you met your wife in Missoula and and your family started in Missoula so tell us that story and, and how does that set the stage for your entire personal life
2: well you, you know it's it's a long story uh Vicky and i i mean there's there's a lot that goes into it, but you know we have four children we have ten grandchildren the eleventh is uh is in route <laughs> so uh eight of uh eight of the ten live right around us here so uh we stayed in Logan for a couple of years, but uh we just felt we need to be around our children we've got 17 month old twins that we see every tuesday which is twin tuesday we call it <laughs> uh, we get to spend time with watching them uh, they'll be here uh, tomorrow and that is the real part of life that is so important is your family and I, I look back at how wrapped up you have to be in basketball and and yet at the same time uh Vick, you ran the show at home and and we made it all work and you know, I feel very fortunate to have what I have as a family guy. Not everybody has that. I don't think a lot of coaches, you know, have four children either, and, and that keep, that keeps you going a lot of different ways. But looking back, I wouldn't have it any other way. So I've been pretty fortunate.
1: I remember seeing you, and we were just all over the place and and running crazy. I wanted to come say hi, but didn't get a chance to. But when we were in Reno for the last Big Sky tournament that was there, I know you were there watching the Grizzlies, but also watching Idaho and Don Verlin and watching Ray Ray at Weber State. So to be in that arena in that moment, I know that year Idaho suffered one of the crazy upsets of the tournament when they lost to Southern Utah, so maybe not the collision course that people might have thought with Montana potentially playing against Weber and then against Idaho. But nonetheless, you had a place where you started your coaching career in Montana and then a couple guys who had worked for you for so long coaching other teams sitting there. That must have been a cool experience for you to see just kind of everything come full circle.
2: It was really special, and we had never been to a Big Sky tournament since I was coaching. You know, so to have a chance to do that, I was a little concerned that Weber or Idaho could end up playing each other or Montana, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I'd, I'd had to sit right at mid court, I think. But just to kind of root for everybody. But as it turned out, Weber and Idaho both got beat early, and and I got to cheer for Montana all the way through the championship game, and they were, uh, as you recall, I think it was a semifinal game that they were really about to get beat and just because miraculous things happened and they found a way to win and you know i have uh, nothing but respect for what travis is getting done he is doing a great job running that program and and i communicate with him now and then and, and let him know how much we all appreciate that he's keeping that thing going and i think the pressure continues to mount on so many guys who have have come through that program, are now head coaches. Yeah, I remember telling Blaine Taylor when I left, I said, well, you know what? I didn't screw it up. Don't you screw it up. <laughs> and and it was in jest, but it was also making the point that we need to keep this thing going because so, it is so unique. And, and I think that's what Travis is doing.
1: You mentioned just sort of the fracturing that's happened in college athletics in general. And it's fascinating because so much of it's driven by football, so much of it's driven by money, and guys that have covered the big sky for a long time and covered mid-major athletics for a long time, we keep a keen eye on as well, but just the state of college basketball in general right now, what do you think of just the state of the game?
2: You know, the game has, has changed a bunch. Uh, everybody's spreading the floor and, and running on ball screens and shooting a bunch of threes, and big old guys like me and Crisco and Tinkle, uh, you know, you've got to you got to throw them the ball once in a while, <laughs> you know, and we used to make our living with our size inside and that is kind of old fashioned. Now the you know, people are spacing their foreman. And so the games not only changed a lot in terms of style of play, but also just uh, like you mentioned, the disparity in, in terms of attendance and uh, money being brought in and the idea of potentially paying college athletes. There's, it's all evolving. And, and I always try not to be one of these guys that say, oh, it was better back in the day. Uh, you try and look at what's happening and why it's happening and, and realize that some of the things are inevitable and some of the things are good and maybe some of them aren't quite so good. But that's the way of the world. It changes uh, ever-changing and, and you got to adapt and, and be part of it or you'll get left behind.
0: Well, Stu, we really appreciate your time today with us, and we've been trying to ask all the coaches one final question. You alluded to it in a professional capacity, but when somebody says to you, "Montana State Bobcats," what comes to mind?
2: Ugh! <laughs> I, I, when I my best story on that, and I'll make it quick. Is my wife is from Montana, Eastern Montana, and ten years after I'd been the coach of Montana, we were going through Montana and I never I would never stop and stay in Bozeman never buy gas never buy a meal I just wasn't going to support Bozeman and that tells you <laughs> a little bit about it, a little bit about my feelings but I I thought oh it's been 10 years and we stayed overnight there and the next morning I went out for a run and when I ran close to Montana state I could hear them chanting stew sucks and I told Vicky when I got back to the hotel, we're never staying here. This was a mistake. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I, I have strong feelings against Montana State, and that's the way rivalry is supposed to be. Nothing wrong with that.
0: Stu Morrill, head coach of the University of Montana for five years went on to an outstanding career at Colorado State and Utah State as well. Coach, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thanks, guys. I had a good time.
0: Coulter, if you're looking to buy or sell any kind of real estate, property, land, homes, commercial, Berkshire Hathaway is where you need to go. And why not harness the synergy of siblings with the Bryan brothers, and specifically, Gary Bryan.
1: Berkshire Hathaway knows buying or selling is a huge decision no matter what sector of real estate you're dealing in. And Gary Bryan and the Bryan team, they have extensive experience with the local community. Gary Bryan at Berkshire Hathaway Montana Properties is proud to support Montana Grizzly Athletics. He's a fierce supporter of UM men's basketball. And he's been selling real estate, both residentially and commercially, in Missoula County for more than 25 years. If you have any questions whatsoever, give your trust to Gary Bryan and the Bryan team. Give Gary a call today, 406-880-4141. That's 406-880-4141.
0: Fun conversation with Stu Morrill. We certainly appreciate his time and the opportunity to talk to him some great stories. And I'll enjoy listening to that one back. On more than one occasion, as we go through here, that's the fun part about the podcast is that they're always there for you to refer back to. Be on the lookout for our episode three bonus episode. And then episode four, Blaine Taylor the original Montanan that became the head coach of the University of Montana, and with a lot of ups and a couple downs, an absolute all-timer, and one of our personal favorites to talk to anytime, any place, and certainly here on the Grizz Grace Coaching Tree podcast.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Blaine Taylor is one of Missoula's favorite sons, and, and regardless of the, the ups and downs he has experienced in his personal life, he has always been so incredibly gracious and friendly, and he has helped me personally throughout my career – I've met Blaine four times in my life, and I've never called him, had him not answer. And that's, that's the type of
0: guy that he is. He will I never follow. answer when you call me.
1: <laughs> and that's, that's the type of guy Blaine is. And anybody that's ever crossed paths with Blaine remembers Blaine. He has such a huge, pure heart. And it is a great story as a kid who grew up in Missoula, played for the Grizzlies, and then came back around to truly live his dream as the head coach of the University of Montana. We'll be excited to share our conversation with Blaine Taylor.
0: Well, enjoy episode four. And thank you for having listened to episode three for Culture Nuanas. I'm Ryan Tutel. This is Grizz Great, the coaching tree.